Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into uh, this space. It's really good to see you all here. If you're gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room or dining room, wherever you happen to be uh, gathered. Uh, If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, if we've never been introduced, my name is Jamie. Uh, It is a joy of mine to be able to serve as Uh, one of the pastors here at Crosspoint to get to open up God's word with you all, which we are gonna dive into in just a moment. Um, And as we'll be in week two of this new series called Restore My Soul, excited to get into that. Even as Pastor Eric prayed, we're gonna be looking at this theme of the bodies that God has given us and how do we use those for worship? And what does that mean with the restoration of the soul? Like what do those things have to do with one another? But before doing that, I wanna give you a a quick update of something that's happening in the life of our church. Um, It's one of those situations where you're like, praise God for this, it's creating new problems, all right? And so here's what I mean by that is that our Crosspoint Kids Ministry, you've heard some of this if you've been part of Crosspoint for a while. We've always had a a thriving kids ministry, Um, but in the last six months, the number of kids checked in on Sunday morning is basically almost doubled, all right? And so there's been plans put in place to expand. One of the things is just kind of like physical location-wise. I'll throw a couple photos up here. Uh, On the left, that was one of the kids' classrooms, and on the other side of that wall was just some storage and whatnot. Um, And so this past week, a project was begun uh, with power tools and dust and all kinds of things to cut an opening uh, there. Um, And this is the finished product now um, that you can see. Um, Yeah, so that looks good. You can applaud for that. I had nothing to do with it, so go ahead and applaud. Um, uh, I was like, can I play with the power tools? No, get away, all right? But um, you see on the back area now is a whole new area for infants, and there's going to be like the walkers and two-year-olds up in the front, which is then opening up a room they previously were in to be able to use for more kids ministry. So praise God, I were super thankful for the provision of that space to have a home here for Altamont Chapel to say, hey, yeah, you guys can uh, cut a hole in the wall and open up this space that way. So that's the good stuff to celebrate. Uh, the need then in all of this, um, just to continue to put before you, to ask you to, to pray. So if you're already involved in Crosspoint Kids, um, thank you. Um, it is amazing the way you're serving the next generation, seeking to make uh, disciples. So thank you for doing that. Will you continue to, to pray for God's uh, provision in that way? But the reality is, as CP Kids, as it continues to grow, and even in this disproportionate way to like the number of adults uh, here, all right, it really does need more help. Uh, the kids' ministry uh, does. We do not want to have those who are serving get burned out, um, and that's very easy to have happen. So here's what I'm putting before you. All right, if you're somebody that this is your home church, your partner here, and you're not anywhere serving, the church needs you. Um, And so we would implore you to get plugged in here. Um, It would be a massive help to the overall ministry of the church. If you're somebody that is serving currently um, in another area, all right, um, we realize you may not be able to serve additional time in like the normal rotation, but in talking with our kids director, Jessica Green, she said, if somebody even like quarterly was able to serve, so you're talking like four times a year, if I'm doing the math correctly there then, right? Um, Even that to have this group of people who maybe serve primarily somewhere else, but to know, okay, four or five times a year, whatever it looks like to be able to be plugged in. Because week to week, there's this juggling act that takes place and we want to care for the kids well that are here to disciple them. It is not childcare, it is not babysitting, all right? It is kids being pointed to Jesus. Discipleship is happening, but it takes, as we'll even look at today, it takes a whole body to do that 
work, all right? And so we just encourage you in those ways. Realistically, it's going to take ownership from the whole church to kind of solve but by, what by God's grace is a great problem uh, to have. And so I would ask you to consider that, to pray about that, uh, to talk with myself or any other leaders after the service, or as always, probably the simplest thing, go to cp.church, that next steps icon you see in the lower right corner, click that. One of the menu items you'll see is to serve with, with CP Kids and can start that process. You even filling out that form is not saying, I, oh no, I'm signed up for life. I cannot get out of it, right? This is you saying, I'm interested in finding out more. Jessica Green will follow up uh, with you, help get you everything that you need. We realize not everyone will be able to do this, but I am calling and praying and hoping that the church, that we can rally around this together because it's a massive, massive need. And it's so, so important, all right? So, with that, we're going to dive into week two of this new series called Restore My Soul. All right, we began this last week with this introduction of this idea that we see in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. All right, he leads me beside still waters. In this line, he restores my soul. It's David reflecting on the good shepherd, all right, in this reality that, oh, there's this restoration that we all need. But the question becomes, how is the soul restored? What does that look like? And so we want to spend time basically from now until the Advent season uh, begins, all right, looking at a truth each week that we need to embrace, to rest in, to wrestle with, all right, because there's something counter that. There's a lie that continues to be pushed forward, all right, various lies that we fight that actually destroy and disrupt, bring chaos to the soul. But if we're going to see the soul renewed and restored and refreshed, there are particular truths that we need to embrace. And so each week, we're going to look at one of those particular truths that we see in the scriptures. All right. So this morning, to help uh, get us going, uh, we are going to get into Psalm chapter 139. So if you brought a Bible, please turn there. This is where we'll start. We'll be in a few different texts this morning. And as always, go to cp.church on your phone. You're welcome to do that. Click that next steps icon and you'll see a tab that says sermon notes. You'll click there, and you can find the text that will be in this morning. Anything that's up on the screen will be there. So Psalm 139. We're going to get there in just a moment, so just kind of keep your spot there. The big idea this morning is we think about our souls being restored. And you've heard it throughout the service already, things that have been prayed for, ways we've been reminded is this. We are not disembodied souls. In fact, the truth that we need to embrace this morning is that you and I have a sacred body. And the question is, are you considering this? Are you considering the implications of this? And I realize in considering this and even thinking about the body, it brings up all sorts of I think questions and confusion because our culture is very, very confused about this. And we as the church can get very confused about this that at one end of the spectrum is almost this worship of the body, all right? There's such reverence given to it. Like on the one hand, it's good, like, yeah, do some exercise, eat your vegetables, great, we're good with, with that. But there can be this like hyper fixation on it where we're so consumed by it, the body gets objectified, you have to look a certain way. There's all this pressure, all right? We don't realize that most of the people we're, we're seeing online or in magazines or what, it's like, oh, they've, they've all had various things like, you know, computer-generated things that have been done to them to make them look a certain way, and yet there's this pressure. And so on one end of the spectrum, there's that, or we can swing the pendulum the other way, and it's this view almost that the body is evil, 
that the body's not to be um, thought much of. We may not know it, but we've embraced the Greek philosophy that was put forth by Plato that basically said, the body is the prison of the soul. And so the goal then is to see, no one wants to be in prison, right? We want to see the soul freed from the restraints of this body. But neither end of the spectrum actually gets at what is the heart of the biblical view. And so we do recognize that the body's you know, the body breaks down. There's pain. We're going to have renewed bodies. I don't know if you've noticed in the last couple of weeks. Um, I've had these up here just because I'm like, there's going to be a moment that I'm not going to be able to read. I, I feel like my eyesight is continuing to get worse. My reading glasses, I'm like, I don't want to be stuck up here just being like, oh, what does it say? Right? Um, but it's getting closer to that moment. So I may have to put those glasses on today. It's all a reminder that it's breaking down at a rapid rate. Okay? So there is all of that but how do we think about the body? Now, this past week, I read this fascinating article. In fact, it's an excerpt from a forthcoming book uh, by this guy named uh, W. Uh, David O. Taylor. It's a lot of initials. It's a lot of names. But anyway, um, in a forthcoming book called A Body of Praise. I was not familiar with these words or this terminology, but as we get into it this morning, We're going to dive into our text in just a moment. Let me put before you something that I learned that I found fascinating. This article is linked out in the sermon notes uh, this morning. But here are our phrases or words this morning. All right, our word of the day, or words of the day, entrainment and interactional synchrony, which some of you are like, oh, I've known about that for years, man. Like, how do you not know this? But for the rest of us who may not know what these things actually are about, here's how this article from this this forthcoming book goes to talk about it. Entrainment, all right, is this idea, and maybe you've experienced that already this morning, when we think about music, and we think about what happens with a group of people gathering, all right? Like a song comes on. Maybe a song comes on the radio. You're at a restaurant, right? And you find just sort of in an involuntary way, you look down and like your foot is tapping, right? Like to the beat of it. Some of you have no rhythm, but maybe you're still finding that beat, right? Like you're able, there's something happening that's like drawing you in. There's this communal experience that is happening. That's a bit of what entrainment is, all right? It's brains and bodies becoming coupled together. There's far more that's happening at a physiological level than we are oftentimes aware of. And so there's this idea of entrainment. A closely related concept that he begins to unpack is this idea, and there's the word again, or words, interactional synchrony. Again, you're like, what? You know, maybe that doesn't mean anything to you. But the idea is where our bodies, we oftentimes mirror one another. So you think of a newborn child, perhaps, all right, and a, a mother gazing at the, the baby. And what is the baby seeing time and time again? The smile of the mother, of the parent, or the father, or the friend, or whoever. And eventually, that child, and it's a moment of great exultation, right, from the family, will mirror back that sort of response. They will smile back at you. This is interactional synchrony that's happening. In fact, the author talks about it this way as it pertains to even what we were doing just a moment ago, all right? When we were all gathered and we're singing together, all right, there's this mirroring. It says, when we sing together, there is some shared neural activity that we're attuning to the same pattern of sound together. You might have been thinking for a moment, like, oh, we sang a song. Oh, that's a, that's a new song. I like those words. Or I like this, you know, this particular rhythm to it. And that may all be true. But friends, God has designed things in such a way, and this is just one aspect of the overall creation and how amazing it is, 
But God is bringing restoration to your soul and my soul partly through how we engage bodily, physically, even when we're doing things like singing songs together. There is something profound that is taking place. This just gives us a little glimpse into how amazing every aspect of creation is, and we need to be paying attention if we're gonna find our souls restored. So let me read for you just a couple sections of this article. Here's what he says, all right? There'll be some words in here. If you're like me, you're gonna be like, I don't know exactly what that is, but I think you'll get the big idea. Scientists have shown how certain practices of music, such as a congregation singing the doxology at full volume, evoke neural activation that is shared among listeners in key emotion areas, such as the amygdala, insula, and caudate nucleus, perfectly clear right there, right? These experiences create a surge of endorphins, a release of oxytocin resulting in a heightened sense of fellow feeling, a deepening of social bonds, a loss of self-protective boundaries, and an increased sense of feeling felt uh, by, by one another, which is to say an increased sense of empathy. He continues, in terms of the scientific theory of Hebb's axiom, which you're like, oh, totally know what that is, but in case you don't, all right, neur- it's summarized this way, neurons that fire together, wire together, and a people who sing together experience a wiring together of their neural networks. They become tethered to one another in neurological and physiological ways, not just in effective or relational ways. Now, there's a lot happening there. I'm not pretending that I understand all of it, but it is communicating like our bodies matter. What is happening? Like God is shaping us and molding us and restoring our soul through all kinds of means, one of which is realizing you and I have been created with this sacred body. What a gift. And are we paying attention to that? Have you considered those things? It's worth reflecting on, even over the past couple of years, culturally, we, have, we are more divided than ever, less empathy for one another. And that's not just out there. I wish we could say, well, look at all those people doing that. That's in the church. It's oftentimes most felt in the church, right? And then we have to recognize for a time, even our ability to gather and do what we've done for a long, long time of singing together, how much might that be contributing, right? Like all of these things. And I realized we had to stop for a while, but we should also count the cost and say, oh, like there's something we missed out on. There's something that was happening that there was a loss then, Like if you feel disconnected from the church body, sometimes it's worth asking some very basic questions like, are you present with the body, right? And I realize not everybody can be at all times, but it shows the importance. Last thing he continues, he says this in summary, my main theological point here is this, over against the idea that the spirit works in exclusively invisible and immaterial ways in the singing ministry of the church, I contend that the spirit produces the one body life of the church not despite or beyond our bodies, but rather in and through our physical selves. The spirit takes our corporate song and it binds us corporally in ways that are irreducible and deeply transformative. I'd encourage you to read the whole article, but it gets at the heart of this matter. They're like, oh, our bodies matter. And so with that, let's jump into what we see as this beautiful design, Psalm 139. Let me go ahead and read these words. They're perhaps familiar to you, but let's just Reflect on these for a moment and realize that God in his creation, when he got to what was the pinnacle of his creation, everything was good. He's like, ocean, it's good. 
Lions, good. Not the football team, but the creation, right? Um, uh, All of his creation, the Grand Canyon, good. The Rocky Mountains, good. But then he looks at humanity that he's created, and there he declares, ah, that is very good. There's something unique about us as image bearers. So Psalm 139 builds on these themes. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And look at the language here. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, which is the Hebrew word for embryo. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So for just a moment, let's reflect on this beautiful divine design. You are not an accident. There is no part of you that has been a mistake, that was overlooked by God, that's like, oh, how did that happen? right? Like every last bit of your physical makeup, the design, how you look, the interest you have, the temperament you have, the personality you have, all of those things, the taste buds that you have that allow you to enjoy certain foods and be like, this is spectacular. And also things you're like, that's the worst thing I've ever tasted, right? Like all of those things, it comes back to Psalm 139 verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. That image there is one of intentionality and of care. Reminds me of, as a young kid growing up in Western Michigan, that every so often we would go over to my great-grandmother's house, my great-grandma's skirt, right? And what she would do is she would literally, she couldn't move very well physically, said some, some, uh, some things that inhibited that, but she, for hours, would literally sit and knit together things that are helpful in cold places like Michigan, right? Like hats and mittens, all right? And then she would pay attention to the fact that all of these great-grandkids of hers were growing older and growing larger, and so then there would be new hats and new mittens that are appropriately sized. And so there was just this level of care and a concern and a love expressed, like weaving it together, knitting together. And if that's true, all right, of somebody making mittens, all right, how much more true is it of our God who literally says he was knitting us together in our mother's womb? He cares about you. You're an image bearer. And your body that he knit together, it matters big time. It has massive implications on the state of your soul continues, all right? I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. David is reflecting on this and he's praising God. He's not looking with jealousy at somebody else and saying, well, their body is this or they got this talent. He's like, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And he says this, my soul, at a soul level, it knows it very well. That the calling for us, as we'll see throughout this series, is if our soul is gonna be restored, there has to be this right orientation to who God is, how he's designed us, and the worship that that should evoke, evoke the, the marveling that should take place. That's what David's doing here. He's not marveling at himself. This is, don't picture David here, right? Like looking in the mirror, if David had a phone, taking a selfie and being like, oh, you do, you look good, man, right? Like that's not what's taking place. It's worship, it's marveling that is rightly directed, not at self, but at God. And that should be what takes place as we consider, even for a moment, I mean, how amazing it is that God was doing things with like, you know, our neural networks and all this stuff while we sang songs together. 
How crazy that he can do that. And he does a million other things that right now Jesus is literally upholding everything that's happening in the universe. Huh, involved at the smallest level and the largest level and everywhere in between. And David reflects, my soul knows this. What's gonna bring restoration and renewal to your soul? Again, it's not a focus on self. So don't hear this call to pay attention to the body that way, but rather, oh, how important is this thing that the Lord gave to us? And as we'll see in a moment, a God that would care enough about us and our bodies and our physicality that he literally would take on flesh and blood himself. A quote that I've come back to before and have shared by John Piper, he talks about it this way, about what our soul needs. And he says, we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. We get enough self. And if self was the answer, we'd be the happiest people on the planet right now. But it leaves us starved. It leaves us wanting. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. Friends, that's what we need, this restoration, that we would behold the glory of God. That's what's taking place in Psalm 139. There was no part of me this summer did not go out to the Grand Canyon, but standing and looking up at like 14,000 foot peaks and the Rocky Mountains that stood there. And I was like, I am impressive, right? Like I didn't do that. It would have been the most ridiculous thing ever. No, what did it do? It reminded me of my smallness. Didn't say it was worthless. It just reminded me of my smallness, like the grandeur of God. I'm an image bearer. But at the same time, there's this humility that comes. And so the question is, is your soul marveling? And the answer is yes, it's marveling at something. But is it marveling at what would actually bring restoration and renewal to your soul? The psalmist continues, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. This is sort of the like polite for the little ears way of, of the psalmist, you know, writing safe for the little, basically being like, hey, in the most intimate of moments where nobody else was present, but your parents, right? He's like, there, like the Lord though is still sovereign over that. The Lord is doing his weaving together. He's doing all of that. Continues, your eye saw my unformed substance. He's talking about the embryo. In your book then were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So from literally it's saying from the embryonic stage to your deathbed, from the womb to the tomb, one could say, like in all of that, God is sovereign over it. He's written all your days. And there's a kindness in that, to rest in that. And part of what he has designed is your body, that it is sacred and it has an impact on your soul. But the soul, again, is this overarching thing that encompasses our body and our mind, our spirit, all of it. And so for the soul to function well, part of it is we have to recognize, oh, we have a sacred body. Now, if we just stop there, we wouldn't be being honest with what is so often gets like out of sync and out of whack and things that are not as God intended them to be. So God does look and say, ah, oh, it's very good. But we know there's fall. We know there's the brokenness. And so one of the places, I mean, it's throughout the scriptures, but for a moment, we'll turn to the book of Romans. And in chapter six and seven in particular, the apostle Paul speaks of what I would say are these disordered desires, that there's aspects of the body that if we aren't honest, what we'll end up doing is just thinking, oh, well, this is just normal behavior. This is what everybody does. And we will fail to wrestle with the implications that like, oh, 
How I use my body, steward my body, has implications on the state of my soul. And so look with me. I put the words up on the screen. The Apostle Paul is talking about what has happened. And in chapter six, he's been saying, like, we've been made alive. And I think if we're all honest, yes, we, if you're a Christian, you've been made alive in Christ. But none of us walked in here this morning being like, I can't remember the last time I sinned. I can't remember the last time like my passions got the best of me. I can't remember the last time that I used my, my body uh, for anything other than just praise and worship of God, right? Like the reality is we so often get caught up in even good things becoming ultimate. As we think about our physical makeup, right? Food is a good gift from the Lord to be enjoyed. But we also know it can become a disordered desire, And it doesn't lead to a renewal and restoration of the soul. Relationships are a good gift that the Lord has given us, but they may not lead to restoration of the soul when we make them ultimate. Our sexuality is a good gift, a good passion, a good desire, but not directed rightly will lead to the soul shriveling up and dying and not actually flourishing the way that God would intend for us. And so Paul's writing these words and he says things like this. So also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is what has taken place in the gospel. And he says this though, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He's saying, friends, yes, you've been made alive, but there still is this sin problem. And though it doesn't reign over you, you've been liberated from it, there are things you will still wrestle with. And so don't ignore that. Don't be naive. He says, let not sin reign in your mortal body. So our body and our passions, like we have to pay attention to them. He continues, verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. He's saying the various aspects of you, even including your physical makeup, everything about you, you can either take the members, the parts of you, and offer them to God as instruments of unrighteousness, all right, which is the way of the world, the way of the self, or you can offer them to God as instruments of righteousness and to say, Lord, use my hands and my feet I mean, think about, you can't read the book of James and not be struck by how important the part of the body is that is the tongue, right? You literally create worlds of heaven on earth or worlds of hell on earth by our words and our language. How potent, how powerful that is. And so he's asking us to consider, like, how are you presenting your body? Are you thinking about the various aspects of who you are and saying, Lord, I surrender it all to you. Use my hands, use my feet, use my eyes, my ears, my mind. And certainly this includes more than that, but just use it all. I present it so that your kingdom might advance, not the kingdom of self, but the kingdom of God. And if we were to continue reading, you get through chapter six and we move into chapter seven. And one of the things that I absolutely so appreciate about this section and just the Bible in general is this absolute honesty because it never paints a picture of all these heroes with the exception of Jesus, right? He's the one who has his desires rightly ordered, right worship of God, all of that. And the rest of us have disordered desires, including through our body, all right? And the apostle Paul is no different. 
The Apostle Paul continues to be one who struggles. Have you had these moments ever where you're like, all right, I know the right thing to do. And I might even want to do the right thing. And somehow I find myself doing the very thing that, you know, like I didn't want to do. I'm like, I, I knew this was the good to do. And instead of just, it's not even that I don't do the good, it's that I actually go and do the exact opposites, right? It's the equivalent of me being like, cool, you're gonna get some exercise today. I'm gonna fire up that workout video. And instead I let it play while I eat cake on the couch, right? Like that's so often what our lives can look like. Like, yeah, that looks good. Yep, what they're doing. And we're like, mm-hmm. You know, like, it's not going to result in anything good. And so Paul's, you know, wrestling through this, and he's got this moment of honesty in verse, or sorry, chapter 7, verse 21. So I find it to be a law. He's saying, there's like this principle, just how the world works is what he's saying, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Have you felt that? Like, there's this battle, there's this war that's, that's happening. He says, for I delight. He's like, I literally do. I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. It's like, I'm not making that up. That's a real thing. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's thinking through, he's wrestling through just what is the reality of his life. He's thinking about the various parts even of his body, and he's like, man, I know what to do. Might even desire it, might delight in it, but there is evil that is close at hand. Every time I read this particular section of Scripture, it always brings to mind, which those of you who know me, this won't come as a huge surprise, but it brings something to mind particularly from the Lord of the Rings, all right? Tracy got to mention the Lord of the Rings a couple weeks ago. I'm like, well, it's my turn now, all right? So um, there is a particular scene in the second uh, film. Uh, it's in the books as well, but you may remember it from, from the film um, in the Two Towers. And there's this main character that I think many of you are aware of. Um, if we talk about disordered desires, there's this creature named Gollum, all right? And you, may not, you don't need to know the whole story, but just know this. He's obsessed with this ring, and it had been in his possession at one point. And now it is with these two little hobbits, Frodo and Sam, all right? Um, and Gollum, though, there's some change that's starting to take place. Like, you actually see some moments of kindness. There's, it's like he's kind of being awakened to like, oh my gosh, all these desires, they're like, well, here, I'll just put it. Like, if this is how you end up looking, your soul's not in a good place, right? Um, and so we'll come back to that in just, in just a moment, all right? That's terrifying, but anyway. Um, there's this particular scene, and it is, it's showcasing for us. The filmmaker's basically like, I'm going to put on display with what appears to be two characters, but they're really the same. You're getting to kind of peer into the mind of this character, Gollum. It's this back and forth. It's like he's arguing with himself. This is some Romans 7 stuff. I don't want to do this. I know better. I desire the right thing. Oh, look, shoot, I did that thing that I wasn't supposed to do. And so literally this particular scene on the left is the part of him, right? It's still disordered desires and he's yelling. And the other part of him is covering his ears like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna listen because he doesn't want to hear the lies that are spewing forth. Lies that would say, no, 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 you need that ring. 
Those hobbits are trying to trick you. You need to look out for you. There is no life to be found apart from that desire to have this ultimate power. And he begins to spew forth these lies. No one cares for you. No one likes you. Even at one point, looking him in the, the eyes in this scene and saying, you're a murderer. And on the other side, no, 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 that's not true. It's not true about me. It's not true about my new friend, Sam and Frodo. And he begins just yelling, like, go away. Like, I'll have no more of you. You're done. He's like, he's saying these things. And at one point, he utters these words. He says, master takes care of us. Master takes care of me. That the call of the life of restoration of the soul is not freeing ourselves from all masters, but having the right master. And in this moment, this scene ends with there literally being like this leaping and dancing and him declaring, I am free. Because for a fleeting moment, he was latching on to the truth that, oh, there's a master that's looking out for me. And so Paul is asking this, this question in verse 24 as he showcases for us, ah, oh, how difficult this is at times. And he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Hear me on this. Paul is not saying, yep, Plato was right. The Greek philosophers were right. The, you know, the body is the, is the prison for the soul. That's not what he means by deliver me from this body of death. He's speaking of just the sin and the battle and all of that. He's like, when will I be made whole? When is there gonna be renewal of all of me, my mind, body, soul, all of it? Who will deliver me? And as Paul continues, he's like, praise God, praise God for Christ Jesus. He is the one who delivers. Now, here's what I wanna close with. I think this is so spectacular as we just zoom out for a moment. Only God could come up with something like this. The God who in Genesis 1 creates our bodies, looks out over it and says, very good. And then we rebel. We say, no, I want the power. I want the control. I want to be like God. How are we going to be delivered from this body of death? Is God going to discard the body? Is God going to burn everything up? Is God going to start over? Or in the most upside down thing ever that only God can do and only God would think up, he's like, you know how I'm going to deal with the body issue? I'm going to become a body myself, that I'm going to take on flesh and blood. This is what we call the incarnation. And then in that, this Jesus, the God-man Jesus, who lives a perfectly sinless life, never rebels, never has disordered desires, always uses his body for the purposes of God's kingdom. He ends up dying the death that you and I deserve. And right before he would go to the cross where his body would be put on a cross, what does he do? He gathers for a meal with his closest friends, even those that would betray him. And he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet. Just think about the physicality of that. The embodiment of that. It's not just talking about servanthood in general. He is there with their stinky, smelly, gross feet, and he's washing them. And then, at a later point in the dinner, he breaks bread, and what does he say? It is no accident what he's saying here. This is my body which is broken for you. The body that was declared very good becomes corrupt. Everything's broken and fractured, and then God moves into the neighborhood. God takes on flesh and blood. 
In this moment of great sacrifice, what does he do? He begins speaking of his impending sacrifice, and he says, my body, which is broken for you, my blood, which is shed for you. This is divine deliverance. This is the answer to Paul's question. Who will deliver me? Well, it's God who took on a body. And then in this meal that we have that's referred to as communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, this is my body. Look at the words of John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus moved into the neighborhood. Jesus took on flesh and blood, the incarnation, and then it would lead to this meal where he would speak these words in Luke twenty-two nineteen to 20. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. This is highly intentional language, and it doesn't stop there. There's this divine deliverance. It's the answer to like, who will deliver me from this body? And then Jesus says this, right? What he's creating then is not just a group of people that are saved by him and just live as isolated individuals, but we are called then to be this dependent community on him that's called the church. And yes, it's broken, and yes, it's messed up, and we've got our issues, and every church in the world has its issues, and will forever until Jesus comes back. And yet, there is something beautifully glorious about who we are. We are referred to as what? The body. This is intentional language again. There is this call to this dependent devotion because now we are the body of Christ. We are the church. Do you see what God is doing? And so in Romans chapter 12, verse one, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Paul's saying, don't forget the mercies. Don't forget the grace of God. That's what motivates all of this. Here's the language again of presentation. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's not just saying, give me your thoughts, say a prayer. Like, present your bodies, every aspect of you. Have you surrendered your body to the extent that you and I surrender our body to the Lord Jesus has direct bearing on the state of our soul? when we keep trying to control, when we keep using our members, presenting them for acts of unrighteousness, it is no wonder we feel distant from God. You and I cannot have a soul that is singing the praises of God when we continually use our members, the parts of us, actively to live in ways that that God would not honor God. He says, remember the mercies because we need it every single day. And then he continues, if we read a few verses later, he begins to speak then about this one anotherness. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. He's like, hey, just think about it at a very basic level, right? Like, look at yourself in the mirror, all right? You've got all these different parts, right? It's like you got a foot, and you got an elbow, and elbows, and you've got, you know, fingers and toes and eyes and ears. You've got all of that, It's a weird body if it's just a nose, right, Um, or whatever. He's like, no, thank God for all of the different members. They, They don't all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. If you are in Christ, 
this restoration of your soul that's taking place has implications on your identity as you are not an isolated individual. You belong to the person sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you. Like We belong to one another. We are to use our bodies in ways that would love and serve and care for one another. This is not just operating at this spiritual plane of existence. I'm talking like very basic on the ground. Are, does your calendar even reflect that there are people in your life that you are serving and caring for? Are you known by other people? Maybe a way to think about it is this. Are you using your body to serve the body? So friends, that's our invitation. And to the extent that we would embrace this and welcome this, I think we will begin to see. In fact, I'm confident we'll begin to see the Lord do this work of restoration of our soul, but to ignore our body, to ignore how we use what God has given to us is only going to lead to more chaos, more confusion, more pain. The call is to use your body to serve the body. And so I would just encourage you in this. Do you have a plan to be connected we push cross-point communities to get connected. Those just launched this past week, not because you need more things on your calendar or schedule. I know you're busy, but you need to be known and people need to know you and you need to know other people to be invested at that level. That's how you use your body. There's another practical way. How do you serve this body? Are you just consuming from this body or are you actually serving the body? Your soul will not experience the restoration that Jesus intends for it if you keep making it all about you. How do we serve? And please hear me. I'm so thankful that so many of you do those things, but we're gonna be continually bombarded with this lie that says, make it about you. Just give up. Don't do that. You'll find restoration as you pursue you and pursue self, and it's a lie. And so the call is, let us serve. Let's offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So church, I'm gonna pray for us. And uh, we began this last week. So just as a reminder, the worship team's gonna come up and during this next song, uh, those of you that have elementary kids, to go get them and bring them into the service. And after this song that we'll, we'll sing here in a moment, that's when I'll come back up and we'll, uh, we'll get to participate in communion together. So slightly different service order. Um, but let me pray. And once the song begins, parents, you can go get your kids and bring them, them back. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace toward us. Thank you for creating our bodies. Thank you for the intentionality, the design that we have been knitted together. And may we be a people that use what you have given to us, that we would see our calling to be stewards of our bodies, every aspect of it, that we might see the kingdom advance, that we might find our souls being restored and renewed as we use our bodies in ways that we glorify you, Father. Thank you for the abundant grace and forgiveness that is always present in the times when we do not want to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We want to crawl off of that altar and say, no, I just want to go. This maybe seems too painful or too costly. And thank you that you continually offer us your grace and your forgiveness. And Jesus, we thank you that you exist right now in your resurrected body and that you're coming back one day to resurrect us. New heavens, new earth, new bodies. And we thank you for that. We long for that day. 
And in the meantime, we ask that you would help us by the power of your spirit to live here as these embodied souls and that we might serve you for your glory and our joy. We pray in Christ's name, amen.